Well, thank you, and good evening. How delightful to be in sunny Southern California. I never cease to be amazed at the extent to which people will go to impress a Texan. Someone asked me an interesting question this morning. They said, how can you tell when a Texan is lying? I say, friend, if his lips are moving, he is. <laughs> Dr. Harold Voth, senior psychiatrist at the famed Menninger Clinic in Topeka, Kansas, wrote a book some time ago entitled The Castrated Family, in which he provoked my thinking with these words. The cycle of sick or weak people who are the product of sick or broken families keeps repeating itself. The effects spread from one generation to the next and slowly but surely the sickness tears down the best traditions of mankind which made our society strong. Sick people produce sick marriages. Sick marriages produce sick families, and sick families produce sick children, and the cycle is repeated. Building a family in today's society is a lot like walking a tightrope. It's a lot easier to fall off than it is to stay on, but there's one significant difference if you fall off a tightrope, it's conceivable you get a second opportunity. But if you fail to prepare your children for contemporary society, there is no second go-around. And the problem with being a parent, when you are finally competent, you're out of a job. But you are compelled to live with your product. I ran across an interesting Chinese proverb some time ago filled with wisdom. The Chinese say one cannot determine the success of being a parent until their children complete their parenting task. Tonight, for a few moments, we want to look at the subject of leadership in the family. And I would like to suggest what I'm calling Suggestions for Survival. Number one, give the home a higher priority. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, our Lord spoke an incisive word when he said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. You see, there are two basic components to significant living. First of all, you need a set of clear-cut objectives. Your objectives determine your outcomes. You achieve that for which you aim. And if you ever lose sight of your objectives, you will concentrate on motion. But it's motion without meaning. In all of the years that I have been ministering in this field, I've never had someone come to me and say, Hendricks, with all of your expertise in this field, I need your help. 
I want to mess up my marriage. I want to ruin my family, and I need all the help you can give me. See, most people start out in a marriage and in a family with a lot of dreams, a lot of ideals. But oftentimes, they've never spelled out what are their objectives. You not only need objectives, you need priorities. In objectives, you ask and answer the question, what do I want? In priorities, you ask and answer the question, what price am I willing to pay? I happen to be a fan of Van Cliburn. We have a woman in our church who plays for the Dallas Symphony Orchestra. And she said to me some time ago on the campus of our church, uh, Howie, are you planning to come to the Van Cliburn concert? I said, I wouldn't miss it. She said, how would you like to meet him? You know, what a ridiculous question. I said, I would love to meet him. She said, you meet me behind the stage during the intermission, and I'll introduce you to him. So I had the privilege of meeting Mr. Van Cliburn and asked him a question that I've wanted to ask somebody like this for years. I said, Mr. Van Cliburn, how much time do you spend every day in practice? Very casually, he said to me, oh, about eight or nine hours every day, two hours doing nothing but finger exercises. And to think, my mother gave me piano lessons. Would I like to play like Van Cliburn? You better believe it, but not that badly. And I don't know how many people who come to me and say, Hendricks, I'd give my right arm. If I had the quality marriage you have, I say, my friend, that is exactly what it may cost you. You see, each of us has to ask some very searching questions about the family. Because frequently we talk a better game than we play. Sure, we want a good family. But often... We are unwilling to pay the price. There's no conflict of duty in Christian experience. You're called to be a business or professional individual. Your call to the ministry is not in conflict with your call to be a father, a husband, a mother, a wife. And I have discovered that personal failure does not arise from overwork. It arises from ambiguity of mission, not really knowing what are my objectives, what do I want, and what price am I willing to pay. Now, I happen to believe that every Christian has a fourfold responsibility. Your first and foremost responsibility is maintaining personal and spiritual integrity. In other words, what you are as a person is far more important than what you do. The reason being, it will determine what you do. And I've got to make sure that very high on my list of objectives, my list of priorities, is my personal relationship 
with the living Lord. I have discovered, particularly in the realm of family and providing leadership for my family, that it was not an option that I meet on a regular, consistent basis with the living Lord. For the simple reason that I can't pull it off by myself. But there's a second objective, and that is the responsibility of developing marital intimacy. And I want you to mark the connection. If you do not have spiritual integrity, you will never develop marital intimacy. And I want to give you a fact. The fact is, approximately one half of your life will be spent without children. I hope you're not building your marriage, your family, around your children. That could be devastating to your children and destructive to your marriage. See, I've been down this road four times. I know what it is to have a teenager who says, Boy, I'm telling you, I can hardly wait to get out of here. So wonderful, is it mutual? It's mutual. <laughs> Boy, I tell you, if I ever get out of here, I'm never coming back. I said, great, is that a promise? I can still remember taking my last son to the airport on his way to a university in Boston. And man, I came home singing the Hallelujah Chorus. But I'll never forget walking into the home to realize I'm going to be spending the rest of my life with this woman. I'm so glad she's my best friend. I don't have any colleague, I don't have any relative, I don't have any friend who even begins to compare with the excitement of that woman. But you see, that's not available in a bargain basement sale. People have often said to me, for example, how come you haven't written more books? This is one reason. I happen to believe a good marriage is more important to me than writing a lot of books. It's a decision that each of us has to make. And I've seen individuals in the business world and individuals in the sports world and individuals in the professional world who want to be the best, and that's exactly where they arrive, but it's at the expense of their family, at the expense of their children. The foremost heart surgeon in America had a wife who committed suicide, has four children, two of whom have blown their minds on drugs and now have an IQ of less than 50, of a daughter who's in prostitution and a fourth child we are still looking for in every state of the Union and 43 foreign countries and have been for the last 10 years. He's a foremost surgeon. It's a very high price tag. In my judgment, too high. Now let's look at the third responsibility. First of all, maintaining personal and spiritual integrity. Second, developing marital intimacy. And third, fulfilling parental responsibility. Will you mark the order? See, you've got to ask yourself, what do I have to give to my children? 
Well, my friend, if you don't have a quality marriage, you have very little to give to your children. The greatest thing you can give to your children is the realization my mother, my father are incurably and unashamedly in love. And it will never be any different except more so. There are some of us who were reared in broken homes who know the option. I know what it is to cry myself asleep at night as a boy, never quite sure where I would end up the next day. And I was so glad for my little Eskimo dog, we called him Blizzard, because I would get reamed out in my home, and man, I'd always go to the backyard to talk to Blizz. He always understood. I'd pour out all of my heart to him. He'd wag his tail as if to say, it's okay, Allie, you and me all the way. I'd be crying, and he would lick my tears away. How was I to know he liked salt? <laughs> and I have often thought there's many an animal who makes a better parent than many human beings. You see, it's that unconditional love that has to be at the heart of a good family relationship. And then fourth responsibility is establishing vocational or professional competency. And again, you mark where I put it on the priority list. You see, if I don't have my act together as a person, and I don't have my marriage together, and my family is coming apart at the seams, precisely what do I have to give? to a company or a profession or a ministry. Greatest leverage you have in your vocation, in your profession, is the quality of your own life and the quality of your marriage and the fulfillment of your family. Well, there's a second suggestion I want to give you in terms of leadership in the family. Not only do you need to give your home a higher priority, but you need to house clean your attitudes. And if you have a Bible or a New Testament, I want you to turn for just a moment to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians. The book of Ephesians tells you how to live a heavenly life in a hell-like world. And in chapters 4, 5, and 6 of the book of Ephesians, you have what I call God's orthopedics clinic tells you how to walk by faith when there's a war on. And down in verse 34, we read this, get rid, thir verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. You know what that's saying? You need an attitudinal house cleaning. Have you ever discovered how many angry, bitter people there are in the evangelical community? I had a guy come to see me for counseling some time ago, the most angry human being I think I have ever met in my life. I mean, this guy's ticked off at his family, ticked off at his wife, bent out of shape over the government that he thinks ripped him off in the last income tax, ticked off at the church, they never have had the picture, 
And most of all, he hates himself. So I built enough of a relationship to him. I thought it was time for a little confrontation. So I said to him, hey, man, you want to know what your problem is? Yeah, yeah, what, what, what do you think it is? I said, uh, you are an angry person. And you know what? He got angry with me. I mean, he stormed out of my office, took him three months to come back in, finally walked in and said, all right, Hendricks, now what do I do? See, Paul says, that's got to go. I have learned that attitudes are far more lethal than actions. Reason, they determine your actions. So, as always, Paul never simply gives a negative without tying it to a positive. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Can I ask you a question? When's the last time you did a very kind thing for someone very close to you? Oh, I'm not talking about waking up someday and somebody saying to you, sweetheart, guess what today is? Oh, uh, today is Monday. No, it's my birthday. Ooh. And now we proceed to go out covered over with guilt to provide the flowers and the box of candy. Comes on like horseradish. I was having lunch with a student some time ago whom I've come to love. We were brown bagging it, so we had a word of prayer, broke open our brown bags, and out of his fell a napkin, and there was something printed on it. He read it, and his eyes filled with tears, handed it across the table and said, Look at that, prof. That's the kind of woman I'm married to. You know what was written on that little napkin? Packed in love by your favorite lover. And underneath it, loving you is living. <laughs> That's enough to make anybody's day, even in a theological seminary. <laughs> When's the last time some of you guys and gals at the college called your parents, not to ask them for something, but just to tell them how much you love them? You know, as a minister, I've had some heartbreaking experiences. You know one of them? I will never forget this. 43-year-old man burying his father. Went to the graveside, and after the service, we were walking away, and he kept saying, I wish I had said it. I wish I had said it. If only I had said it. Finally, I said to him, what do you want to say? He said, I wish I had told my father I loved him. Now, it's too late. Men and women, if you are planning to do something, if you are planning to communicate a message, the time to do it is tonight. Because you have no clue you're going to be here tomorrow. You have no clue you've got an opportunity coming the second time. 
And one of the things that I have particularly found helpful working with young people is oftentimes, particularly those who've come from dysfunctional homes, hard time forgiving dad, hard time getting over their gripe over mom, or maybe a sister or a brother, some friend that you feel sort of did you in, is to get on that phone and tell them, I'd just like you to know I love you. I appreciate you. That's a kind thing. And then he says forgiving each other. You know, the hardest thing for me to get a couple to say is two words. I'm sorry. Forgive me. And by the way, the more educated they are, the worse it is. I had a lawyer in my office some time ago. I thought he was going to do it. We'd go right up to it, and then we'd back down again. We get up, and finally, right in the middle of it, he said, All right, I love you. I said, I beg your pardon? I thought the guy was sneezing. <laughs> no, he was saying, Forgive me, but you don't want to say it too clearly. She's liable to understand. And by the way, will you look at the pattern? Forgiving each other. How? Just as in Christ, God forgave you. You know that favorite sin of yours? You got it in your mind? The one you committed 3,419 times last week? See, suppose the 3,418th time you came into the presence of God for forgiveness and he said, what, are you here again? Man, you were just here five minutes ago. Gabriel, go get the club. He doesn't treat you that way. And yet, isn't it interesting? Many times we give the hot end of a poker to the most significant people in our life. Now, by the way, there are many of you who are in the community. There are many of you young people who are not even married. This is the time you need to get the suggestion I got as a young man. You know what it is? After you graduate from college, after you're married, after you're in business, profession, ministry, whatever God is calling you to, you're going to live a very active life, particularly if you are committed to a role of leadership. You are never sitting down looking for something to happen. You are in the process of causing something to happen. I never sit around saying, what in the world am I going to do with myself? I got more on my plate than I can say grace over. So consequently, you say, well, how do you handle this? Well, a very astute businessman gave me a clue when I was a kid in college. He said to me one day, Howie, I think God is going to use you someday, and you're going to have a problem in the ministry. I said, what is it? He said, you're going to be so involved ministering to other people that you are in danger of bringing all of that stuff home to your wife and your children and dumping it on them. I said, well, how have you handled this? He said, I have a point of no return, and I've got one in Dallas. If you come, I'll show it to you. It's White Rock Creek. And when I get to White Rock Creek, coming home from the seminary, I drop the whole ball of wax right on the freeway. I said, well, that's bad ecologically. Yeah, I know it. The truth of the matter is, next morning, where is it? It's crossed over the freeway. Hasn't missed me in 40 years. Hey, Hendricks, here we are. Take us back. Because I learned through the wisdom of my brother 
that work and professional tensions spill over into the most important of human relationships and they deteriorate your attitude. I'm going to give you a third one and I hope you latch on to this one. If you want to be a leader in your family, then enjoy your family. Now, if you're taking some notes, jot down John 10 and verse 10. It's a contrast. The thief comes but for to steal and to kill and destroy. But I am come, Jesus said, that you might have life. I mean really live. Are you living or just existing? You know, wherever I go across America, I run into people and say, How are you doing, man? Well, pretty good under the circumstances. Well, I said, What in the world are you doing under there? You look at their face, it looks like a frontispiece to the Book of Lamentations. And they get up to give a testimony and say, You know, it's so wonderful to be a Christian. It's really so exciting. You know, I have the strongest urge to say, hey, do us a favor. Don't tell anybody, all right? <laughs> I want to ask you a question. How attractive is your home? Oh, well, Dr. Hendricks, I'm glad you asked that because we've just finished a redecoration program, and we've got wall-to-wall -wall carpeting and coordinated drapes. Now, that's all of the junk you got under one mortgage. What I want to know is, what's the climate? We have a home in the city of Dallas. Every time I go there, I get lost in the living room rug, sort of break out in mink rash. And some time ago, I was there. They have this massive imported Italian coffee table. And right in the middle of that thing was a peanut butter jar with a lot of peanut butter, frankly, still in it. And coming out of it was a collection of daisies. And I said to this woman, I'll bet that means a lot to you. She said, Howie, that's the most beautiful thing in this home. My boy picked it for me on his way home from school. And she said, just think, before I came to know Christ, I thought that all of these objects, they are were the really beautiful things. You see, that's the transformation of a life. And I ask you, are you enduring your Christian life or are you enjoying it? Is it a drag or is it a delight? Let me give you one other question. Penetrating. Fasten your safety belt. Be a little rough air for a minute. What will you be remembered for? I used to think my kids would remember my sermon. They don't. In fact, neither do I. I used to think my kids would be impressed that, you know, I'm a seminary professor. That's impressive, don't you think? You don't think so? Neither did my kids think so. My son Bill said to me one day, hey, Dad, when are you going to get a new job? So what's the matter? And you like my job? No. How can I? So they can't explain to anybody where you work. They all think you work in a cemetery. 
Sometimes I think I do. My kids are not impressed that I know Greek and Hebrew, and I hate to tell you this, but they're not even impressed that I came out here to talk to you. <laughs> Imagine that. My kids are impressed the same way your kids are impressed, and that's by the reality of Jesus Christ in your life. And that's got to come through at a level that they can understand. Relationships are much more important than rules. Well, there's a fourth one I want to share with you. And if I get off on this, we'll be here all night, so pray for me. Fourth suggestion I would give you is that you communicate your love. In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. And all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. One of the questions I have learned to ask parents, particularly in counseling, is the question, uh, do you love your children? I had a woman come to see me some time ago. I said, Madam, do you love your son? She said, do I love my son? Of course I love my son. You don't think I came up here to be asked a stupid question like that, do you? I said, how does your son know that you love him? Well, she said, I wash his clothes and I iron them and I prepare his meals and I clean his rooms. I said, how old is your son? She said, three. Oh, I said, lady, that's a biggie. That'll really impress a three-year-old. So you've got to ask the question, is your love coming through at a level that the child can understand? And I five ways that you can communicate your love. Number one, you communicate your love by the time you spend with your family. Not simply the amount of time, but the attitude. So often, you know, people will come to a seminar, my wife and I conduct on family life, and I'll say, right, Brother Henry, you really got to us. Got to play with my kids more. And they go home and they say, all right, Johnny, come on, hurry up. I don't have a lot of time to horse around. Hendrick says I'm supposed to play with you. There are a thousand and one places you'd rather be than there. You know where you might as well be? Any one of them. But you see, suppose you come home from work some night and uh, your wife says, hey, honey, it's going to be about 20, 30 minutes before dinner. And you say to your boy, hey, man, what would you like to do? He says, hey, Dad, could we play ball? Sure, get the ball. And outside we go and throw the ball around. Pretty soon Mom calls, okay, it's dinner. Boy, you look at your watch. Boy, son, that's been the best 20 minutes I've spent today. Man, I enjoyed that. And the kid is, <laughs> right. But you see, you come through loud and clear. And by the way, don't cover yourself over with false guilt. Most children are much more perceptive and understanding than we ever give them credit for. It isn't the fact that you're busy. Interesting studies have been done of people who travel a great deal and who are gone a lot. And some of them have the finest families we are producing in America. Because when they are at home, 
they choose to spend the time with the child. And that's what comes through. But you cannot love someone you do not know. And you cannot get to know a person without spending time. The second way you communicate your love is by listening. And I suspect most of you looked in the mirror before you walked away tonight. Did you make the observation that you've got two ears but only one mouth? <laughs> That's an audiovisual that you ought to spend twice as much time listening as talking. But you see, most of us as parents are like old McDonald's wife with a talk talk here and a talk talk there and a hair talk, there talk, everywhere talk talk. So you say to the guy, how many times have I told you, son? I don't know, dad, computer broke down. Teaching we're telling most of our kids would be brilliant. And by the way, the average person can listen from four to ten times as fast as you can talk which gives you a lot of extra time on your hand. And most of us, particularly men, turn on the uh-huh and uh, sort of throw it into neutral. Here's a third one, and that's interest. I'm talking about interest in the things that interest your child. I've spent a lot of time with individuals who are very competent in their field and the interesting thing is they would like their children to become interested in the things that interest them but they're not willing to spend the time to get interested in the things the child is interested in I have a friend back in the East father is a radiologist incredibly gifted person had a son that I finally got the picture one day not only will never be a doctor he will never go to college though he has today one of the finest businesses in that part of the United States and it all started with his interest in electronics and I remember I used to go see them and uh, he'd always invite me up to his room and I'd walk up there and man you walk into the room and the lights go out and the strobes come on and all of the rest of it you know oh man he's so excited old pops downstairs tearing the scab off his ulcer because you see if his son were interested in medicine that would be a good news item but his son happens to be interested in electronics which the father doesn't care anything about. The basic need of a parent is to flow into the life of your children. You would not believe how many hours I spend with professional athletes getting them to come to grips with the fact your son will never play a down of football. I'm talking about an all-pro who has a son who is into the arts and who is incredibly gifted but couldn't care less about anything athletic. The question is, as a parent, do I manifest my love by the way I interest myself in that which interests the child? 
A fourth way you communicate your love is by presence. Make sure you spell that correctly. P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. -E -E. I'm not talking about presence. I'm not talking about saying to your son, here's $10, go play in traffic. I'm talking about the fact that you are there and you are all there. They often have a wife in my office in counseling. I say, does your husband ever take you out to dinner? Does he ever? Sounds like it's exciting. He's not there. So what do you mean he's not there? You mean he's not sitting across the table? Of course he is. But he's a thousand miles away. He's working out a deal. He's not even listening to what's going on. Do you ever talk to a person? Maybe you're over at the dining hall. You ever talk to a person who looks slightly over your head? Does that bug you like it does me? I have the strongest urge to reach across the table, grab the person, pull their head down so I can talk to them, eyeball to eyeball. Every child needs three things. He needs focused attention, he needs eye contact, and he needs touching. But there is a fifth way that you can communicate your love, and some of you young people who are working with junior high and high school kids out in a church someplace, I'm here to tell you you could revolutionize your ministry all out of recognition. And you can do it by the fifth means by which you communicate your love. I call it affirmation. The question I ask a parent is, are you on your kid's team or are you on his back? You may need to get off of his back and to get on to his team. One of the most exciting things that I have enjoyed teaching at seminary over the years is just getting to flow into the life of young men and young women, many of whom are dying for somebody who believes in them when they don't believe in themselves. And coming along, putting your arm around them, assuring them God has a great future for their life, convincing them you believe in them. The greatest thing you can do for your child is to love your child's father, to love his mother. And by the way, I hope you're not ashamed to communicate that love. My wife and I were embracing in the living room some years ago. My younger son, Bill, came plowing through the door with his buddy from down the street. And the moment he saw what was happening, he said, good night. We're going to have to wait a minute. Kid said, why? What's the matter? I said, my parents are in there smooching. Kid says, well, let's go in. <laughs> He said, ah, oh, man, this goes on in our house all the time. This little kid looks my son straight in the eye and says, boy, Bill, it must be fantastic to have a father that loves your mother. He said, I don't even know who my father is. Every night we got a different guy in that house. It must be great to have a father that loves your mother. And men and women to a kid who tends to take that for granted he gets a liberal arts education crammed right down the center of his throat. Nothing you can do more effectively for your children to establish a leadership role than to love that child's mother.
that child's father. Let me suggest a fifth means of leading through your family, and that's by exposing your home to the community. We all know the verse very well. Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Please note, not my prosecuting attorneys. A witness is a person who tells something that he or she has seen or heard. And that's the way witnessing should take place. But there's a danger, particularly in the Christian home. The danger is of becoming ingrown as a family. You see, any family that is turned in upon itself is not a healthy family. It's a sick one. And there are many Christian families that consider themselves very healthy that are sick nigh unto death. And I often ask to a person, do you ever have any lost people in your home? Oh, Brother Hendricks. You know, this is a Christian home. Well, I say, wonderful. Can you think of a better place to bring pagans than into a Christian home? But you see, we're scared to death because we're more concerned about our reputation than we are about our responsibility. More concerned about what people will think than about what Jesus Christ will think. Christ calls us to penetration, not to isolation. And you don't have to have a perfect family to have a witness in a community, but you ought to have an honest one, a progressing one. You ask him, how do you handle problems of sickness, brain-damaged child, disappointments, financial losses, death? We have a family in our community that has lost three children in the last four years through very severe accidents, and illness. And to see how that family has coped with death, three of their four children going into eternity. Credible witness for Jesus Christ. People come out from under the rocks to find out how this family copes with that kind of reality. And I need to ask you, as I need to ask myself, are people coming to Jesus Christ as a result of your family? One of the interesting questions that I have been asked over the years is, how do you account for the fact that, you know, a young person grows up in a Christian home, goes off to a pagan university, off to the military, off to another part of the country, and goes right down the tubes? And they often ask, let me ask you one question. How many people has that son, that daughter seen trust Christ as a result of the ministry of your family? Answer, none. Then does it really surprise you that they should go off to a university campus and couldn't care less that they're going to hell on a skateboard? That they could go into the military, as one kid said, coming out of this recent rhubarb. And somebody said, what kind of a testimony did you have? He said, nobody found out I was a Christian. You see, a lot of it is the result of failing to understand what is our mission. 
Some of the most exciting things that have happened in our family, and I don't think it's an accident that two of my four children who are in the ministry are in evangelism. They will tell you it is the product of the steady stream of people they saw come to Christ through our family ministry. I'm so grateful for a church that had the vision. As you can expect, living in Texas, everything is skiing in Colorado. So finally, we put together a deal for our high school kids to go to Colorado between Christmas and New Year's. The youth director had a lot of perception. He said, you can't go on the ski trip unless you bring at least one lost kid so that we knew at least 50% of the kids that went were lost. We sent five Greyhound buses packed with kids. This year, 72% of them lost. I can still remember when we first started it because I had two of my kids in the high school group. They came home one day and said, Dad, you know, how, how, how can we get some kids interested? I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll get you some film on skiing in Colorado, mom will make some popcorn, you bring the kids in. And so they went out, and they brought a mob of kids in. They were wall to wall, never forget that night. Lost a little furniture that evening. But the thrilling thing is, together, my two kids took 12 kids who did not know Christ. I can still remember going over to the campus on uh, New Year's Day when they were coming back and these greyhounds would roll in and we'd run around to find out what's going on and I'm looking either for Bev or for Bob and finally I see Bev clearing off the steam on the windows and I see her holding up ten fingers because ten of those kids trusted Christ. For your information, four of them are graduates of our seminary and in the ministry today. You see, you only develop a passion for the lost by being exposed to the lost. And so often what we do in our communities is we get into this little holy huddle and sing, oh, that will be glory for me, the second stanza of which should be, and the rest of the world goes to hell, without ever developing on the part of our kids tremendous sensitivity toward the laws. Well, let me suggest one or two more. Surround your family with significant models. If you want to study a beautiful passage, I would suggest you study Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, where Paul brings to the attention of the church at Philippi these models, these individuals like Timothy. He says, man, I have nobody in his leg who will naturally care for your estate. Today the pedestals are empty. And I find that most young people today, particularly in the secular culture, are desperately looking for someone they want to be like. I was in a barber shop some time ago. I know most of you wonder why I would ever spend any time there. It's a little fraud I perpetuate. There's a little kid that showed up in the barber shop, 
on a number of occasions, and I've built sort of a friendship. And finally, I said to him, hey, son, who do you want to be like when you grow up? I'll never forget this kid looking me straight in the eye and saying, mister, I ain't found nobody I want to be like. You think he's an exception? Then, my friend, you are really out of touch with a contemporary society. And all of my identification is with them. Who do you want to be like? Who's somebody worth modeling your life after? By the way, you need to understand that every child, no exception, goes through a period of time when nobody knows less than my parents. They were wonderful people, but, you know, what was it like living on the ark, Dad? And I can still remember telling them I didn't live on the ark, and they asked, well, how come you weren't drowned then? You know. Don't underestimate the impact of people outside of your home who are in league with your home. My son, whose whole life was changed by a young man at the seminary by the name of Sam. He was our youth director for a period of time. And I mean everything that Sam said, boy, Bob, that's the way it is, Dad. He said black was white, from now on it's white. And I remember one day he said, hey, Dad, you know what Sam said? I said, what did Sam say? Sam said, Brrr. you know what Sam said? What I said to Sam in class the other day. <laughs> but who in the world are you? Like an experience I had working with the Cowboys one day I was in the locker room and the guys had asked me to bring my boys and so I brought them. They were out of their gourd, you know, walking around like this. I said, get your autograph book. They don't mind. They love to sign them. And so they're going around signing these autographs. And pretty soon Roger Staubach came up. He had asked me in the class, would you get me a copy of the New International Version? He said, it makes so much sense to me. So I got him a copy. And uh, he said, would you do me a favor? I said, certainly, Rog. He said, what do you want me to do? He said, would you sign it for me? I said, sure. So I'm signing the thing. You ever have this experience where you sense something, somebody's watching you? And all of a sudden, I look down, and here's my son. <laughs> and after Rog said, thanks a lot, and took off, he said, well, what's he want that for, Dad? I mean, Roger Staubach, we know, but who are you? Well, there's a final principle, and don't miss this one or you miss it all. You need to relax in the Lord. And I got the passage for you. It's Psalm 127 and verse 1. Listen to this. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. You know what that's telling you? God has no plan B for your family. And by the way, this is the reason why a lot of Christian parents do not simply hit the bottom, but break clean through. Because when you do, the only way you can look is up. And in your anguish, you say, oh, God, unless you do something, nothing will be done. He loves to hear that. Because then when he works, you will never be able to say, I was a competent parent. All you'll be able to say is, to God be the glory. Great things he hath done. 
In Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, those wonderful words, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not to thine own understanding. Please note, he doesn't say don't use it. He says don't trust in it. In all of your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your path. Men and women, I can tell you categorically, no amount of business or professional or ministerial or housewife success will in any way compensate for parental failure. I think for the first time in my life, I understand what John meant when he said, I have no greater joy than that my children walk in the truth. That's ultimate fulfillment as a parent. The realization that your children are walking with the Savior. You see, you cannot do anything about your ancestors. But you can do a great deal about your descendants. I had the neatest guy come up after the service this morning. He said to me, I want to thank you for something. I said, what is it? He said, thanks. Thanks for sharing that you came from a broken home. Because he said, I sat back there on the stands and I had a hard time fighting the tears. Because God said to me, there's hope for you. You see, God's answer to the leadership problem is always to break in and start something new. So if I didn't come from a Christian home, a wonderful heritage, I just came to Christ and now I'm married. Now I am anticipating a marriage in the future. Now my children are grown and gone. I wish I could do it all over, but you can't. But you can begin where you are now. God always begins with you just where you are at this point in time. This grace is sufficient. And the thrill of a school like this is exactly what happened in my life in college. To meet a young lady who became my partner. She came from a nominally Christian home. I came from a broken home. We had the privilege of starting a whole new cycle. Now with four married children, starting four brand new units, with the grandchildren coming along to start another generation for Jesus Christ. Leadership, ultimately, is a function of the family.